0: Hello, it's Monday, June the 5th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio, Peter Robinson, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, host of Uncommon Knowledge, and co-founder of the website Ricochet. And in a past life, Peter was a political speechwriter, first for Vice President George H.W. Bush, then President Ronald Reagan. And that's our topic today, the art and need for presidential speech writing in the age of Donald Trump. Peter, good to have you. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure. I want to take you back almost 30 years, one week shy of 30 years. And I want to ask you, I'm going to scramble your memory bank now, but I want to ask you, what were you doing on Friday, June the 12th of 1987? It was a Friday in Washington. It was a Friday in Washington. I had packed my
1: bags. I was ready to go get on an airplane and fly down to Charlotte, North Carolina. My parents had retired from upstate New York, where I lived, down to Charlotte, and I was going to go visit them. Mm -hmm. But before I went, I turned on the television to watch President Reagan in Berlin, live, deliver the speech that I had written, except that at that moment, even as I turned on the television, there was still a serious doubt in my mind as to whether he would deliver the speech I had written or one of the alternative drafts that the State Department kept trying to sneak in. And so it was with immense relief. I was not part of the traveling party. I had been to Berlin to do research. But I turned on the television, and I can still remember I turned it to CBS. Bill Plant was the correspondent. Bill Plant is still working for CBS, covering the White House all these years later. And Bill Plant said words to the effect, um, the centerpiece of the speech is a dramatic call, uh, this is pe- pe- the, those who've seen the drafts is, say this is one of the president's more dramatic addresses, and I thought, ah, oh, what a relief they didn't get that central line. And then the president leaned into it and delivered the speech. Leaned into it. I say that because he really did lean into that line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mm-hmm. And as was so often the case when you when one of us speechwriters would hear Ronald Reagan deliver a draft that we had written, he did things with it that were even better than we had hoped as we heard it in our minds' ears, so to speak. Working on it, you hand in the draft, you have some idea of the, what the president's delivery will be like, and that delivery was more forceful and more focused in the central passage to tear down the wall than I had hoped. So I was immensely relieved. But that was really it, not overjoyed, not moved. I was just relieved that the draft I'd written and s- fought for for three weeks was the draft the president delivered.
0: You were a young man writing this speech. You would have been 30 years old. I was 30 years old, yes. 30 years old, and this is a rather, you know, it's a test of one's confidence to write for the president on a foreign stage. The day before Reagan gives the speech in Berlin, Margaret Thatcher is up for re-election in Britain. Ah. She is elected to th- a third term. That's right. That's first right. first British prime minister in, th- in 160 years to earn a third term. Who was the previous Liverpool? Who was the previous? It th- might have been was it uh, Gladstone or Disraeli? Okay. All right. Listeners help us out. <laughs> <laughs> but were you sensing as you were writing this speech that Reagan had an effect won the argument by this point, that here he was now, he would have been. No, in no. his seventh year you could see Britain reaffirming Margaret Thatcher, did you? As you were writing this speech did you feel that history was on your side? I did not.
1: And in fact, I'm, it's occurring to me now, I have no memory whatsoever of Mrs. Thatcher's having been elected the day before. Right. But I can tell you why. Because I had been working on that speech for three weeks, and it getting that draft done, by the way, I was not contending with history, I was not trying to write some historical speech. In the first instance, I was trying to hit my deadline to get a speech to the president. And then in the second instance, after it went out to staffing, Mm -hmm. I was fighting the staff. National Security Council opposed the speech, State Department opposed the speech, the diplomat on the ground in Berlin opposed the speech. So I had a fight on my hands that lasted three weeks, as I recall from the date it went out to staffing until the day the president delivered it, that required me to attend meeting after meeting after meeting to fight for the speech, field one telephone call after another from the State Department, the National Security Council, and so forth. And I was so absorbed. I'm sure this is what happened. Mrs. Thatcher is now and was then a hero of mine. I was so absorbed that... That speech was all that was on my mind and all that I was paying any attention to for that period of three weeks or so.
0: So how does a 30-year-old speechwriter defeat the State Department apparatus, (laughs) advisors, twice your age or twice, three times the experience in government? How did you prevail?
1: The answer is that a Mm -hmm. 30-year-old speechwriter doesn't. But a 75- or 76-year-old president Mm -hmm. does. What happened was that I had been to Berlin and done research on the ground, and you we've, I've told this story before, and you and I have discussed it, that I talked with some West Berliners. The American diplomat on the ground told me, don't have the president mention the wall. They're, they're used to it. There's just a sense of weariness here in Berlin. And then I asked Berliners if that was true, and it wasn't true at all. They'd stopped talking about the wall, but they still hated it every day. Mm-hmm. And a lovely woman, our host at this dinner party, a woman called Ingeborg Elts, who just died a couple of years ago, became angry and said, if this man, Gorbachev, is serious about this talk of glasnost and perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of this wall. And that went into my notebook, and it was a, that was a moment, if the president had been there in my place, I knew he would have responded to that decency, common, uh, uh, common decency, simplicity, it was powerful, Okay. So I had been there and done the actual research drafted the speech through a series of speechwriters' machinations we actually got the speech to the president before it went out to staffing that happened very very seldom mm-hmm. but the president saw the speech and then we speechwriters met him and he singled out that passage about tearing down the wall as something he'd particularly like to say right. and then it went out to staffing okay So what that meant was that those who opposed the speech had two avenues of attack. One was Ronald Reagan, and nobody tried that, because you don't go to the leading anti-communist in the Western world and a man who'd spent half his career as a professional actor and say, Mr. President, that line you really would love to deliver, well, some guys at the State Department don't think it's such a... No, they didn't do that. The other avenue was me, the young speechwriter. Because if I, the one who'd done the research, if I wrote a memorandum and said, Mr. President, on mature reflection, I think this passage is probably too much. If I had done that, the chances were very good the president would have deferred, so to speak, to the speechwriter who'd written the material. So that's why they kept coming at me. But I, having been there and feeling that I understood Ronald Reagan. This may sound terribly arrogant, but it simply is the case that the speechwriter's job is to inhabit the mind and the psyche even of the president as well as he can. And nobody else in an entire administration has that job in quite that way. And so I knew I'd been to the site where he was going to deliver the speech. I knew the sense of history that, that, that he'd feel at that place. I'd been working with him by this stage for five years. I knew what sounded like the president and what didn't. I knew he would have responded to that call to tear down the wall. And I knew that these bureaucratic drafts the state department kept sending in just wouldn't do the trick. So I fought and fought and fought. And finally, the matter went back to the president himself for a last decision. And he said, nothing doing. I'm delivering that speech as it stands. But... uh, the notion that history was on our side, zero. Mm-hmm. Gorbachev, this was the first American response. This, his talk about glasnost and perestroika at this point was relatively new, some months, but not more than that. And there had not been an official American response. So if you recall, no reason you should, the speech took place 30 years ago, but leading up to the line, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, the president said, Uh, Now we see signs that the Soviet Union may be coming to understand the importance of freedom. They've done this, they've done freed some markets, some unjammed, some radio broadcasts. There is one sign that Gorbachev can make that would be unmistakable. So when I drafted that, when the president delivered it, it was genuine, at least in my mind, and then the president afterwards said, nobody expected the wall, including Ronald Reagan, expected the wall to come down when it did. It was a genuine question. Is Gorbachev simply trying a new way to preserve communism? Is he trying to deceive the West in one way or another, or is this genuine? Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that was a live question in my mind as I wrote the speech.
0: Speaking of live, were you able to watch the speech live?
1: Yes, it was live when I was wa- I, I watched it live on television, but I was at home in my apartment in um, Arlington, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I was not part of the traveling party. Mm-hmm. And when I turned off the television, I ran to the airport and flew to Charlotte. And were you
0: surprised by the reaction to the line? No, no. no. Well, I
1: mean, the reaction to the line was hard to gauge for me. Uh, the crowd cheered. Mm-hmm. You could see that on television, but that, that was right. all I knew. Right. Off I went for a weekend with my retired parents in North Carolina and I came back to the White House on Monday. Monday, that's right. And that was when it began to become clear that the speech had actually worked. Mm-hmm. And here's what made it clear. I went to lunch. There's a big round table in the White House mess. The staff tables. There were tables you could reserve if you had a couple of guests. But there's also a big round table. And that was table the table. If you didn't have a guest, you just sit at the next available seat. And I got there a little early. I was the first person in the dining room. Mm-hmm. And it was June, sort of summery feel in Washington. And most of the staff were. Or maybe I, in any event, it was just me. And the next man to walk in was Peter Rodman, very senior man on the National Security Council who had fought the speech tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. And he sat down, and I tensed. I thought he might berate me yet again. And Peter Rodman turned to me and said, well, Peter, it looks as though our speech was a big success. I thought, ah, Okay.
0: Fine, I it's the ultimate it. Washington compliment when somebody who fights you now says, we did it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we exactly. did. It. Have you been surprised how iconic that line has become over the decades?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, I would not have. Uh, so. In the the way our speech writing shop worked, everybody was aware of the president delivered half a dozen or so bigger than ordinary speeches each year. Mm-hmm. And we would try to share the State of the Union address was always a big one, although that was the exception because several of us would work that together. That would right. be a quilt that we stitched together. Somebody would write a passage on education. Somebody
0: else writes on foreign policy, and it gets t- stitched together. Those are, those are ultimately sort of process speeches, Peter, and that's so yes. many things get filled. State of the, the Union address. You don't remember too many memorable answers, except no. for Bill Clinton claiming the era of big government is over. Right. right. Otherwise, right. no, those are just those are just right. programming speeches. Programming. That's
1: exactly right. Um, in mm-hmm. any event, so... I felt that that was one of the big speeches that Ronald Reagan had delivered that year, mm-hmm. but the speech the speech didn't become the speech didn't become iconic, to use your word. The speech didn't become iconic until well, the wall had to, the wall A- had to come down. Exactly, first, eighteen right? months after he delivered it, when the wall came down, and I was now here at Stanford in business school, which mm-hmm. I, I found overwhelming. Um, I'm so innumerate that I couldn't work any of the... And in any event... So there I was trying to get my study sets done and watching this on television, and there were were two things that the networks, and it was only networks in those days, Mm -hmm. there were two things the networks kept playing. One was live scenes of people, Berliners, students, climbing to the top of the Berlin Wall, taking hammers to the Berlin Wall, popping uh, bottles of champagne at the Berlin Wall, and then they would cut back to... Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear Tear down this wall." wall. And I don't know how to put it, but the speech seemed retrospectively prophetic, if you see what I mean. It called for the fall of the wall, and 18 months later, the wall came down. But it was then, when the wall came down, that the speech achieved the resonance that I believe we associate with it today.
0: Exactly. So to those listening who have grown up watching the West Wing, They've absorbed a lot of Aaron Sorkin (laughs) in their life. They have watched the majesty of political operations, the beauty of being a political speechwriter, all the wonderful, poetic, waxing one can do. How does one become a presidential speechwriter?
1: By the way, on the West Wing, Mm -hmm. the bit of that that's
0: true to life,
1: Rob Lowe, as you may recall, played the speechwriter. Right. And it is true that the speechwriters are always the best-looking people in any administration. That's
0: true. He he could play you in the movie, right? (laughs)
1: Exactly. He's almost handsome enough to play me. Um, (laughs) You ask two questions, the answers to which are completely different. How did I become a speechwriter and how
0: does one become a speechwriter? Explain your path because your path is a little, not to give away too much, but speechwriters oftentimes come from a journalistic background. Uh, The late Tony Snow, for example, who wrote for... um, uh, the elder George Bush uh, right. came over from the Washington Times. Sometimes they come from within a political organization. William Sapphire, Patrick Buchanan, are good examples right. of this.
1: They've but campaigned. That's that, right. that's actually more typical that they've been. Right. The candidate has gotten to know the speechwriter exactly. during Favre the campaign. For Obama. Exactly. But in your case, <clears throat> my case is unreproducible, and probably we should say thank goodness for that. After I graduated from Dartmouth College, I attended Oxford University. And after I finished at Oxford, I stayed in Oxford for a year to write a novel. And in the spring of that year, after eight months or so, I read over the material that I'd written. And it was so bad that even I could barely stand it. And I realized I was in some trouble. In particular, I needed a job. I was broke. And I'd spent a year writing this in any event. So I wrote letters to everybody I could think of who might be able to give me a lead on a job. Very few people wrote back, but one who did was William F. Buckley Jr., the great journalist. And uh, Bill wrote in his letter, you like politics and writing, you should go to Washington and try to be a speechwriter. This is 1982. Mm-hmm. And if you get to Washington, get in touch with my son, Christopher. Right. I flew to Washington in the summer of 1982. Christopher Buckley was then chief speechwriter and only speechwriter to George H.W. Bush, the vice president. And I recall distinctly walking into that, into the old executive office building to meet Christopher thinking, oh, if only he can get me a job writing speeches for some member of Congress. And for some reason I had fixated, I thought writing speeches for the postmaster general would be a good job. How that entered my head, I don't know. But that was my highest aspiration. And I chatted with Christopher for maybe 10 minutes. And Christopher said, well, I'm leaving the job in two weeks. And my replacement has just fallen through. I really don't see any good reason why you shouldn't write speeches for the vice president. And by the way, while you're in the building, go downstairs, one flight of stairs, and introduce yourself to Tony Dolan, the president's chief speechwriter. Mm -hmm. I did that. While I was talking to Tony, his phone rang. And it was uh, Dan Mahoney, long since dead, Dan Mahoney of blessed memory, who was running the campaign for governor of Lewis Lehrman against Mario Cuomo. And they needed a speechwriter, so I hear Tony. I can only hear Tony's end of the conversation. Speechwriter. Oh yeah. Well, I have a guy right standing right in front of me, as it happens. So Christopher and Tony, both Yalees, perpetuated effectively a fraternity prank. Christopher told the Bush people that he'd found the perfect writer for them, me but they'd better move fast because Lehrman wanted me. And Tony told the Lehrman people he'd found the perfect writer, again, me, but they'd better move fast because the Bush people wanted me. So for two weeks, or, more, I got into this, exactly yeah. this competition. I was flew to New York, flown to New York three times to be interviewed by Lou Lehrman, in and out of the White House for interviews, and they both offered me jobs. And I went with the vice president because he would at least be in office until the re-election year of 1984, whereas Lou Lehrman might lose that fall. And indeed, he did lose that fall. Um, And so, uh, and the really telling piece of that story is that nobody, nobody in the Lehrman campaign and nobody in the vice president's staff asked to see a writing sample, or even asked if I had ever written a speech before, which was very good news for me because I never had. So that is unreproducible
0: And it also shows why why we should want less of the federal government. Interesting point of irony, Peter, that George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, not a man known as a great speech giver, had you in his stable at one time. Christopher Buckley, whom we can agree, is one of the just most exquisite writers uh, in modern times. And another wonderful writer uh, who I think is tremendously undervalued, Andrew Ferguson, writing speeches. Yes, exactly. Andy is Andy is the writer's writer. And he's, and he's one of the half dozen. A funny matchup between a politician who's not a great speech giver yeah. and these terrific writers. That's the strange. He, um, by the way,
1: when um, when Pete Teely, who was then the vice president's press secretary, mm-hmm. so I interviewed by all kinds of people, and then Pete Tealy brings me in to see the vice president himself. And George Bush says, Pete, who's this? So, Mr. Vice President, this is Peter Robinson. I'm recommending him as your speechwriter. And George Bush looked down at my feet and then let his gaze rise slowly to my eyes. And then he turned to Teeley and said, well, he looks about the right height. Let's hope it works out. <laughs> that was it. So, George H.W. Bush, now that his son has been in politics, he needs a lot of initials. But in our day, everybody referred to him on the staff. He was just GB. He only needed two initials is an underappreciated man in many ways, including in some ways in his own mind. He had grown convinced that he was not very good at writing speeches or delivering speeches, that he was best in small groups and he was best speaking extemporaneously, and he was good in small groups and he was good speaking extemporaneously. And the result of all this was that, um, and then it's also his approach to politics. For him, he loved, the telephone, he loved working inside the beltway, phone calls, meetings with members of Congress, mm-hmm. delegations from this interest group or that interest group, right. studying policy. And to him, giving speeches was a, was a kind of onerous duty that he had to do in addition to the real work, as opposed to Ronald Reagan, where it was just the other way around. Ronald Reagan viewed speeches as an act of governance. You talk to the American people, you will rearrange the political landscape outside the beltway, and the beltway will rearrange itself for you. But it should be said that George Bush was actually a very literate man. He was a fine writer, as we now all know because a book of his letters has been published, a fine feeling writer with his own voice. Right. And <laughs> when when he took time when he took time to prepare a text and delivered it as written. In other words, surrendered himself, so to speak, to the text itself, Mm -hmm. he could give a very good speech. But it took special circumstances. Uh, I I could tell you half a dozen different stories, but one in particular, um, he was present at the dedication, this shows how long ago it all was, Bill, he was one of those dedicating the Hubert H Humphrey Metrodome in Minneapolis which has since been torn down. Right. That's how long ago this happened. And it's Minneapolis uh, heavily settled by Scandinavian so the king of Norway is there and a prince of Sweden and so forth and the vice president of the United States. And there was an echo in the Metrodome from where he uh, on the field where he there was an echo to him. So he heard himself saying my fellow Americans 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 and he he, all he could do, no chance to ad lib, it was throwing him off. All he could do was stick with the script. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't an echo where the audience was seated, or at least where our portion of the audience was seated. So we, the speech is delivered. It actually was, a, he, he delivered it beautifully. He actually had a lovely voice and a certain sense of dignity about him. And he stuck with the script, None, no wandering around, no ad-libbing, and we got onto the airplane, Mrs. Bush came straight back and said, who wrote that speech, that was, that was very good. And of course, the speech was no better or no worse than all the material we gave him, it's just that he got so rattled by the sound system, he actually delivered it for it once. Right.
0: Anyway. All right, let's skip past 42, 43, 44, and let's talk about 45. 45. Assess Donald Trump as a speech giver. You know, he's not bad. He, he went,
1: well, let's put it this way. He's similar to George H.W. Bush in the following sense. He clearly doesn't like giving speeches, or it's not his first recourse. Ronald Reagan had a problem, a political problem. He'd st- immediately start thinking in terms of what he would say, what themes he would use, how he would explain himself to the American people. Donald Trump reaches for his phone and starts tweeting. He's given two speeches that i believe show that when he feels he has to deliver a speech he can do a reasonably good job and really quite a good job and those speeches are his address to a joint session of congress which was beautifully written delivered at the very worst it was delivered competently and there were several passages where he really he really he really he really touched the audience i thought That was one. And then the the second was the speech that he delivered, what what would it have been 10 days ago or two weeks ago now in Saudi Arabia? Right. Which was, that was a speech that included some very powerful lines. Terrorists do not worship God, they worship death. Mm -hmm. Whoa! Very powerful line that says everything that needs to be said in a certain sense. And he delivered that pretty well. He's not Ronald Reagan. But when he needs to deliver a speech, he can do so. He can do so. And he I don't know who wrote either of those, but he has people around him who are capable of writing good speeches. Well, crafted speeches, speeches that move people, that do what a speech needs to do, which is give the audience a sense of going on a journey with Mm -hmm. the speaker. So he's got people around him, and he has it within him. To deliver a good speech.
0: There is a code among White House press secretaries, Peter, that you don't criticize the incumbent. And you've seen past secretaries just straining at the bit uh, to talk about Sean Spicer. But the unwritten code is you just do not criticize. The person up on the podium, because you, you mean former press secretaries. Former don't, ones, right, got it, don't, it, yes, don't yes. criticize the current, because you understand the situation. It's a difficult job to begin <laughs> with, and it's just so easy to to fire them from the peanut gallery. Right. Are speechwriters, do they? Is there the same code among them among the graduates? The, the former speechwriters? No, speech oh no, we no. savage.
1: Oh no, no, no. You can't. You really can't get me. If you play an Obama speech, I'll tell you everything that's wrong with it, and there will be a lot wrong with. Well, he got off some good speeches, but he was. Hugely overrated, but no, there is no respect for my uh, Funnily enough, there is quite a lot of camaraderie. Um, there's a, I think you, 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 we must have talked about this at some point over the years. Bill Sapphire started a club for former presidential speechwriters. Yes, so we do, we get to know each other. And there's, um, I did an event at uh, at Dartmouth for a rhetoric class at Dartmouth with um, a recent. Uh, Obama speechwriter who turned out to be one of the nicest guys I'd ever met.
0: What did Obama do wrong?
1: Obama was pedantic, the texts were badly written, sloppily written, aside from if you put Obama in front of a large crowd of a certain kind and he got going on in a certain kind of rhythm, mm-hmm. and those rhythm it's quite a specific thing, it's the kind of the rhythm of the black church. So you can hear an orator, you can hear echoes of Martin Luther King. It's the kind of thing that Jesse Jackson does when Jesse Jackson is good. And Barack Obama could really move and connect with a large audience in that in that genre, that metier. But that was the only place he was any good, in my judgment. The State of the Union addresses were overlong and pedantic. There was a strong tendency for him to talk down to his audience. And then the speeches, it's hard to do this without a text in front of me, but aside from that very specific kind of speech, his speeches tended to be quite flabbily written. I mean, you or I would take a, an Obama speech, and we'd tighten it up. We'd just be easy. We'd both want, feel the urge for a blue pencil to tighten up, get, a, right. get rid of those extraneous sentences. There's a there was a kind of looseness and flab about it. All of this, to me, it all felt like the product of um, some a graduate seminar at some fancy institution. That's what it felt like to me.
0: Right. So we're approaching, Peter, the five-month mark of this presidency. I thought you meant—we're oh, about to say the five-month mark of this podcast. <laughs> that too. I'm t- yammering on. <laughs> Uh, Five months into the Trump presidency, he has given an inaugural address, he has spoken to the joint session, as you mentioned, he has given the speech in Saudi Arabia. But this is not a presidency so far that relies upon big speeches to drive messages. He does it how? Tweets, announcements, leaks organized chaos, if you will, but he is not. Press conferences. Press conferences. Who, who would have right. thought you could actually use a press conference right. to rivet the attention of the nation? But unlike, say, Reagan back in 1981, where the beginning of selling the tax reform package was what? Going on national TV Absolutely and outlating right. the need for tax reform. We have not seen Donald Trump sell programs that way. Correct. Is this a reflection of who Donald Trump is and how this White House works? Or let me throw a counter argument at you. We are now in a different age of communicating where... You have so much divergent press, so much in the way of of finding information, be it television, internet, social media, however you get your information. It is hard for a White House to say, we're going to give a big speech in two days and boy, watch out. Frame everything around the speech. Well,
1: um, the short answer is I buy all of argument one, Mm -hmm. which is to say this, Donald Trump is Donald Trump and he's not. I see no indication that this man feels comfortable with or that he feels an inclination to get a, face a political problem and say, mm-hmm. get the speechwriters in here. That doesn't happen. Um, and then I, I think I'll buy part of the second argument. So for sure, in the 1980s, when the White House said to the networks, we need airtime tonight, there were no questions. Right. You'd go live at from the Oval Office at 8 or 9 o'clock, and all three networks, and there were only one, two, three networks in those days, or PBS, I suppose, counted as a kind of nascent network, you'd get airtime, no questions asked. Well, not quite no questions asked. They'd want an advanced copy of the speech so they could have their commentators ready to go and so forth. But there was no pushback. And now, nobody wants to cover a presidential address. What's that's boring. We can make far more money putting on... Uh, Jeopardy, right? Right. Well, Bush, okay. the Bush,
0: the Bush forty-three White House would have to fight tooth and nail to get airtime other than Fox News.
1: Is that so? That okay. is so they
0: would have to—they'd have to go to the networks and scream bloody murder to show the president's speech, and the, and the media would push back saying, "It's just a speech. It's, it's really not newsworthy." Yeah. But here's the funny thing, Peter: Donald Trump is good—is good business for TV.
1: Donald Trump is good business for TV. What I'm not sure about is so you say. You say he hasn't used speeches to define his agenda, he's but I'm been, not sure
0: he's defined his agenda. He's been using speeches in what I'd say are very pro forma ways, but he's been doing speeches he has to give. Yes, he has yes, to give an inaugural yes. address. Well, he doesn't have to give the joint session of Congress, but if you're going to go traveling overseas, my goodness, you have to have, have at to least have one speech. anchor speech explaining right. what you're up to. But he's not going around the country, he's not going to the heartland and giving economic speech, he's not giving a speech on health care, he's not giving a speech on infrastructure, He's letting, he's letting his agenda be driven in other avenues.
1: Yeah, well, that's the question. Is the agenda being driven? Is right. it being adequately driven? I, it would seem to me on the evidence of Capitol Hill...
0: that could be a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah, a
1: separate <laughs> podcast. He's not getting very far. So, on the other hand, um, I guess the question is, can he do this? Is this the new form, right? Is, right. This, is this, was this what we're in for? We've got speeches from for 2,500 years. Pericles gives speeches, and there were probably important speeches before then that mm-hmm. we haven't come down to us. But we've got, for 2,500 years, the fundamental act of governance, the fundamental act of executive governance, remains unchanged. It is one human being going before his countrymen and speaking to them and attempting to achieve a shared sense of values and attempting to deploy arguments that persuade them. And Donald Trump is the end of the line. Well, is he? Or is he just Donald Trump and his successor will get back on to speech giving. Mm-hmm. I'm dubious that he can, I'm not even sure how to frame this because we're still, everything is so wild, all the rules are being broken, it still feels as though almost anything could happen and right. it's difficult, it's still too early to draw any conclusions, Sure, but I think I would argue that he could have done better and that if he made use of speeches, he
0: might have, that would have been one instrument that would have enabled him to do better. I'm curious about this because he is uh, approaching five months, he'll soon be at six months, and he'll be at eight, and eventually 12, and there will be a lot of pressure to give a progress report. <laughs> so do you think he is going to give out, no, he'll
1: uh, give out a tweets,
0: thousand he'll give tweets a, on what I've done over the right. past year?
1: He'll do a, It'll be an eight-point tweet, would be my guess.
0: Or perhaps go somewhere in the lower 48 and give a big speech saying, here is how I've changed politics in America. So much
1: depends on who's, as best I can tell, mm-hmm. so much depends on who's talking to him, who, who, what he's listening to. I would argue, and I'll bet I could drag you into arguing it with me, if I got invited into his Oval Office, I'd say, listen, Mr. President, you were really pretty darned good when you delivered that at joint address to Congress. And if you look at the press, that evening and the next morning, early the next morning because he went right back to tweeting the following morning. I mean, it was from, but in any event, the press, several people use the same line that this was a delayed inaugural address. Mm-hmm. Finally, Donald Trump had become presidential. He had laid out his agenda. If you looked at the reaction and then uh, in the chamber as he was speaking and listened to the Republicans as they were interviewed afterwards, Republican senators and members of Congress, I had the feeling that he was establishing himself as the leader of his party. Right. They had questions about this guy. How close do we get to him? Do we have to maintain our own distance? And he established himself as leader of his own party. Now, he, he himself stepped all over his message beginning not quite 12 hours later. But he had 12 good hours, and it was because he delivered an effective, well-written speech. If he'd stayed out of his own way and followed that up with, additional speeches that would flesh out various aspects of the agenda i think he'd he'd be further along than he is now
0: i agree uh, particularly
1: on the domestic agenda
0: i agree i uh, there's a temptation to say let trump be trump just as let reagan be reagan let letting trump be trump is to send trump on the road and put him at rallies, mm-hmm. put him in front of very large adoring audiences where he feeds off the energy right. and he becomes vitalized. But I think the problem with doing that, Peter, now that he is an incumbent politician, is he will stray off message. And he will get into crooked Hillary, fake media, he'll just right. get sidetracked and the media will run with that and he'll step on whatever message he's trying to drive. That As day. you know
1: very well, right. particularly during a campaign you'll use the same stump speech over and over and over again and alter one paragraph. Right. Because the press can't help themselves. They travel with the candidate. They're not going to report on the stuff they've heard before. They always go to what's fresh and what's new. And with Donald Trump, you're not able to establish. Pat Buchanan, when he was communications director, told us speechwriters something he'd learned from Richard Nixon, which was Mm -hmm. you weren't done with a speech until you were able to draw a line under the sentence in the speech that would be the lead in the New York Times. Right. What's the one quotation with which they lead? Richard Nixon taught Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan insisted on it as a discipline for us. You cannot do that with Donald Trump because you have no confidence, whatever, that he's going to stick with any text or talking points or themes. Mm -hmm. So, um, by the way, I say all this, this is probably yet another podcast. I actually don't think he's doing all that badly, uh, particularly in foreign affairs. There are all kinds of things that are going better than I would have expected.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But mo- at least as regards the narrow but vital question of moving legislation, pulling your own party together in the House of Representatives and the Senate, he would be much better off if he'd given some, a few
0: more and more disciplined speeches than he's done. So I was listening to you last Friday. So for our listeners who don't know already, Peter, Peter co-founded a website called Ricochet.com. And every Friday, if you like podcasts, by all means, download this. list as Peter and two other very smart gentlemen talk about world affairs. And last Friday, you were on, and the guest was Patrick J. Buchanan. Pat, yes, that's right. And Dennis Prager as well. Yes, yes. And these are two interesting fellows because Pat Buchanan has been in Washington for a very long time. Grew up there. Yeah, grew up there. That's right. Went to Gonzaga. He's uh, written wonderful books about his life in D.C. And Pat is at all times sort of evolving with the times. So not changing himself, but just adapting himself to the uh, the climate. Uh, Dennis Prager, on the other hand, has rather remarkably adapted himself to pre- and post-Trump presidency. Yes, is it? Before, yes. the, before the Trump presidency, Dennis Prager was remarkably critical of this man. Now he's remarkably cheering for the president. Mm-hmm. What interests me in the podcast, Peter, is uh, you're actually rather optimistic about Trump's fortunes in that podcast. Uh, I, I w- well, I, thi-
1: I do think you can tick down a list of accomplishments that are real and very impressive. So what's he done on the border? Actually, he's done there's been no new legislation and these executive orders have been held up in court. All that his administration has done is to enforce the law Mm -hmm. already on the books. Full stop. But by enforcing the law, they've got illegal immigration down dramatically. Enforcing the rule of law means enforcing the rule of law. It reasserts that we are a constitutional democracy, that the law comes first. Mm -hmm. That's a huge achievement in my judgment. If you look at foreign affairs, we have re- Donald Trump now has a Secretary of Defense who's backed up. They're going to they're proposing an increase in defense spending, it's only 3%, even though it's billions of dollars. It's a relatively modest increase in defense spending. But Donald Trump has supported James Mattis as Secretary of Defense. We both know Jim because he was here at the Hoover Institution. And James Mattis and Donald Trump have made it clear that the United States of America is serious again. You use chemical weapons in Syria, and within 72 hours, one of your airfields gets 59 American missiles delivered. You start threatening the United States in North Korea, and we have—I believe the number is three—carrier groups, which is a huge American presence. We only have 11 carriers for goodness' sake. Right. Three carriers in in uh, within range of North Korea. Uh, so there is a sense and. NATO, you can't run NATO unless all the member countries are self-respecting nations. And so the president goes over there and slaps them around and says, look, the whole organization agreed that everybody here would spend 2% of GDP and 5 out of 28 are spending that amount. 23 nations are free riding on the taxpayers of the United States. That's a serious thing to say. It's not disruptive, it's a serious, reasonable thing to say. So." He's conveyed a sense of seriousness. The markets are hopeful on his economic program. He's reestablishing the rule of law. The writ of American law now extends to the border. These are all real achievements. And that doesn't even mention Neil Gorsuch, or that uh, it's going to be very hard to get health care legislation out of the Senate. But all the conversation is, how do we repeal or at least dramatically improve Obamacare? That's progress. The tenor of the conversation, the subject of the conversation in Washington is dramatically different. So this is a guy who, difficult though he may be to take in all kinds of ways, if you trained under Ronald Reagan as I did, he has achieved remarkable things.
0: I just, you you want more, particularly with regard to legislation. Correct. So again, Peter, I think he needs to consider giving at least a speech at some point in the next few months explaining what he has done, how he has changed things. But then I would contend he needs to consider a series of speeches to go around the nation and talk about what exactly he wants to get done next.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I'm hoping they'll, well, we'll see. Okay. Actually, who knows? Now that that these investigations going on, maybe he will be tempered. Maybe he'll Begin leaning in favor of speeches and against uh, tweeting, if only on the advice of his very expensive personal lawyer. So, as a former speechwriter, you got to tune into the Comey hearings and listen to the opening statements. Uh, I will not, actually, because I'm going to be in Hanover, New Hampshire, getting for two couple of days of festivities with my family as we prepare for one of my sons to graduate. But I'll catch
0: it that evening. You should. I think it'll be interesting, Peter, because you will have um, some people doing their best Watergate imitations, some people auditioning <laughs> for right. 2020. That's right. And I think That's from right. a speechwriter's standpoint, if I'm working for that Democrat who's 6th or 7th or 8th in line to do opening statements, what are you going to see after the previous four or five people have all piled on in the same fashion? What could you do differently? That's a very good question. You want to be brief? I'm asking in particular because I was a reporter called me to talk about this today. Oh, really? California's junior senator, Kamala Harris, is sitting on the committee. Yep. And Kamala- Which committee is it? Who's hearing? The, uh, in, uh, it's intelligence, I believe. So, Got it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So she she's on the committee. She's obviously a very junior member of the minority, so that means that you speak very late in right. the program. So you're hearing pretty much the same thing after each person. It's like going to a political convention. Everyone's saying the same thing. Ex- right. Candidate X is awful. Our guy is terrific. Yay! Right. Uh, so I'm curious to what she can do differently because she is somebody who is looking at a, at a national run, maybe in 2020. So, what do you do? Darn good question. What yeah. did you answer? I answered. She probably needs to go look up Howard Baker and ah. see her, and see how Howard Baker managed to inject himself into the Watergate hearings and ask different, well, different wasn't OPM he
1: emotions. minority? Wasn't he the ranking minority member by then?
0: He was uh, high Sam, on the minority at that time. So he, he spoke. Yeah. I think he, so got he to spoke speak early. early. But he found a way to sort of get into the conversation in a different fashion. I don't know if she's going to maybe try to expand the conversation and talk about a wider conspiracy. We have this appetite, endless appetite for conspiracy in America. But she'll need to do something different, I think, in terms of an opening statement, in terms of her questioning.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think. Going back to Watergate, so so Watergate is a good model for senators, I think. Between the two of them, Sam Irwin. Right. Irvin. Irvin. Irvin, isn't it? Irvin. Irvin. With an E, yeah. Of uh, North, North Carolina, Carolina.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: who portrayed himself as just a country lawyer. Right. And that wasn't quite true. He was a pretty sophisticated political player. But still, there was a persona, there was an aspect of it that was true. He had come up. He was country, North Regu- Carolina. As a
0: regular fellow, yeah.
1: And Howard Baker, who was uh, eastern Tennessee, not not Memphis, not Nashville, but... Mm-hmm sort of the country folk of Eastern Tennessee. So right. both, of these, both of these guys were able to connect with ordinary viewers easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thought of themselves as ordinary men themselves. Kamala Harris, I don't know, I think Kamala Harris probably thinks of herself as a member of this new class, fancy education, uh, Silicon Valley money, the Barack Obama coalition really, right? So is that gonna work? I'm thinking this through out loud, which is a very dangerous thing to
0: do. No, it's a good way to think it because in this case, it's a reflection of the Democrats' challenge writ large, which is that we are out of power in very serious ways. We not only do not occupy the White House or both chambers of Congress, but we also, if you look around the country at governorships, legislative seats, we have done horribly. And why have we done horribly? Well, in part because we do a very terrible job of talking to people in words that they want to hear, right. we speak in the ways of which we feel outraged and dreams that we want. We're seeing this in California right now with this great debate over universal health care. We have our ideals for the American people, but our ideals don't necessarily match up with a lot of Americans out there in the great beyond.
1: Right, the great beyond, including the California
0: Central Valley, including the, large sections of California. The great itself. beyond when you finally get outside of Barrio Traffic. Right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You get over that mountain, all of a sudden, yes. Rush Ball comes in and. KQED in San Francisco goes out.
1: Yes. So there's this may be another way of getting at it. If you think about the basic appeal of Hillary Clinton, as also Mitt Romney, I would argue. Unfortunately, this is the case, but I would argue Mitt Romney. What their campaigns came down to was this. Vote for me. I'm smarter than you. Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump. Different appeal. Mm -hmm. Vote for me. I'm one of you. Right. I think Kamala Harris is in the uh, smarty pants group. And that's, it's hard to connect if that's really your fundamental approach, that government belongs to a class of highly educated, privileged people.
0: Final question, Peter, and I will let you go. Where is oratory in America in 2017? Where are the great speeches? Who is who are giving the great speeches in America, we're now in the middle of graduation season. Mm, and Good question. Uh, I find very few graduation speeches, I'm going to sound like a snob and a curmudgeon, but I find very few cur- graduation speeches really are that memorable. They're all sort of the same. Maybe there are four or five people in America writing every graduation speech. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. Think. And Maybe I'm jealous because it would be a good industry to get into. Uh, but it seems speeches just sort of one after the other are about, you know, what you should be doing in life and what you've learned and so forth. Uh, Oftentimes, they're just screeds about one's own ideology or lashing out against an ideology they don't care for. I find nothing terribly profound, nothing terribly evocative, nothing memorable. And I tie that into politics, Peter, because I think that post Reagan with Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama, a lot of words were spoken. But how many memorable lines do you carry from those presidents? Very few, very few, very few.
1: On the other hand, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves that most most speeches are lousy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? Ted Widmer, who was a re- writer for Clinton, as I recall, brought out a two-volume uh, selected American speeches. Mm-hmm. And you've got the founders, John right. Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who are pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. But then you get almost a century of sheer windbaggery right. until you get to Lincoln, and Lincoln just Lincoln is unlike anybody else. He's the Babe Ruth of orators. There's nobody else like him before or after. Right. So there's most speeches are sheer windbaggery. I'm trying to think who, who Ted Cruz knows how to deliver a speech.
0: Right. But it seems to me one challenge that politicians have, Peter, is often By the way, Bernie Sanders is very good. He is good. It seems to me you need history as a tailwind. Oftentimes for a great speech. Yes. Ronald yes. Reagan was at a historic crossroads giving that speech. Right. He was on the eve of something very historic to happen. What opportunities have politicians had in the past several decades on a very historic moment to give something similar to the way Reagan did? What well has, I can what, tell I can
1: tell you one speech that was right. good and that has been buried. And this is a kind of counterexample where the mm-hmm. President Reagan delivered a speech on June twelfth, nineteen eighty-seven that seemed prophetic because what followed fit with what he in effect called for mm-hmm. and the speech that George W. Bush delivered to a joint session what was it 10 or 11 days after, after 9/11, 9-11 and that was a beautiful speech it was beautifully written right. he delivered it well it was compelling and right. it was moving
0: also the and, speech he gave um, was it a national cathedral as well
1: I don't remember that one, although if you tell me so, I'm willing right. to, ta- to but, accept it. But the problem but, is... But the
0: idea that these are, this is a huge historic moment that the president is speaking at.
1: And then we end up with a five-year right. war in Iraq that goes wrong for right. four and a half years. And so right. what this moment of national unity and mm-hmm. what he called upon the nation to, to attempt to accomplish right. just didn't happen. Right, Events did not comport with the right. speech.
0: But Franklin Roosevelt is, is, well, I'm not saying he had an advantage, but he was able to speak during the Great Depression, yes. a great historical moment. He spoke during World War II, great historical moment. John Kennedy comes along, and he's able to at least tap into a generational transition in America. Ronald Reagan uh, speaks at a time when America is also making a profound cultural shift. It's moving to the right, and he picks it up domestically and internationally. Bill Clinton in his eight years really didn't have this. What historically happened during oh, Bill Clinton's I know
1: eight? that you're being too easy on Bill Clinton. Look, so John Kennedy is the is right. the example there. We mm-hmm. were. F- you've got the Cold War going on, but Harry the Cold War starts with Harry Truman. It goes, and this generational shift, right. this sense of hopefulness, that's there for any president. Right, that's there for any president. Donald so, Trump. I mean, the millennial gen. The, you, so, so that's there for anybody. Who so, wants if
0: Donald it. Trump were to give a speech, Peter, in which he is tying himself into history, into a historical movement, what does he say? He says
1: that even as during the Cold War, even as during the Second World War, we had to define what this nation stands for, and even as during the second of the Cold War, once again we faced an enemy with different beliefs from ours, and we had to. Explain what we stood for and why we stood for them. So now, in this moment, when we face Islamic radicalism, that let us, let's face it, these these radicals are not crazy. They have a distinct set of beliefs and they view our society as corrupt and exhausted and ready to collapse. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why we are not exhausted or corrupt are ready to relax, uh, to, ready to collapse. And from there, a reassertion of fundamental American principles. And I would also say you you, you uh, talk about, um, you also wanna talk about the new economy that's good. Co- so yeah, something like that. I'm talking off the top of my head here, but something like that, yes. Part of that would make for a very good UN speech. Well, if any, if there is such a thing as a good UN speech. Mm-hmm. If, if, if the first thing he did was that and the second right. bit said, and so let me tell you why I've decided to withdraw from the U.N. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. But I like the idea of this Trump re-expressing his, well, his, his principles, if you will, the underpinning for his presidency. It's all there. Yeah.
1: This notion of make America great again. His, what Donald Trump has, and you may, it's a good thing we're separated by a desk because you might want to slap me out of my what will sound to you like a silly statement. What Donald Trump has is a deep fund of natural piety. And I don't mean piousness. I mean piety in the old, the ancient, the Roman sense of love for native land. Donald Trump loves this country as it is, wants to improve it in various ways, but he loves it as it is. And if there is a choice, between seeing this country flourish and our enemies flourish. He wishes victory upon us and defeat upon them. And that is something we haven't had in quite such a straightforward, instinctive, and totally unapologetic fashion Mm -hmm. in
0: some years now. Mr. Trump, tear down this wall. Give that speech. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We need to get out of here, but done, I'd be remiss done. not to give you a one minute to explain why everyone listening to this podcast should be tuning into Ricochet. Oh, Ricochet's, uh,
1: Ricochet Ricochet! is a uh, conservative website, and it has a suite of podcasts, which I think are run from fun. We have a weekly Ricochet podcast in which I appear with Rob Long and James Lilacs mm-hmm. to outrageously fun which is the GLOP podcast, Rob Long, John Horitz, and Jonah Goldberg discussing right. popular culture, movies, television, speeches, to absolutely fascinating law talk with Richard Epstein and John Yoo, in which they discuss the legal issues of the day. And I have to say, I find that, I find that the most informative, aside from reading textbooks on the law, that, uh, that podcast I always, find, I always learn a lot it's always enjoyable, but I always learn a lot. Right. And then we have on the website, it's, so you can download those. Those are, those are free. The website itself, for that matter, is free, where we have issues being discussed. Members of Ricochet, membership costs $5 a month. It's essentially free. But members of Ricochet, I mean, $5 is such a small nominal amount. Members of Ricochet discuss issues among themselves. It's a kind of sense of community. We charge a little bit each month so that we have the right to kick people off the site. Um, You have to give us your name and so forth. And when we accept your money, you also have to sign uh, that you accept the terms and conditions. And that's very important because it means there's no garbage, there's no vitriol, there's no trolling on Ricochet. We can keep it
0: literate, civil, fun conversation. Very good. Peter Robinson, thanks for joining us. Enjoy Hanover. And on June the 12th, I hope you're somewhere raising a glass and toasting Ronald Reagan and your own role in playing part of that history. Bill, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. We want this venture to grow, and we also want Ricochet to grow. We're all on this together. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including, yes, Peter Robinson, straight to your inbox. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds, and our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. Peter, are you on Twitter? I I, I signed up for Twitter under pressure, but I never, ever, ever tweet. Proving yet again what a brilliant man you are. (laughs) (laughs) For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution.
1: Thanks for listening.